0: The teaching for this evening comes from Galatians chapter two, verses one through ten. This is God's word. Then, after fourteen years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential... And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Back to Galatians. Here we are. We're going to continue in our series. In this uh, letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches uh, in a, a region called Galatia, most likely in modern, what we call modern day Turkey. And uh, I, I keep wanting to stress every single week that this is a letter about freedom, about gospel freedom. And not just as an idea, but as a lived experience. And by which I mean, when I say lived experience, I mean if you and I were sit that, to sit down over a coffee. You could tell me, you could give me an example in your daily life where you have tasted the freedom of grace. That's what I hope that we begin to understand and experience as we walk through this letter together. And Paul is here writing to these churches uh, out of very deep concern because there are false teachers in their midst who are teaching them a different gospel. And at best, these churches are confused about this gospel, and at worst, they are beginning to actually turn to these other gospels at the suggestion of these false teachers. And part of what was happening is the teachers were claiming that Paul's gospel was watered down, that it was only half a gospel, that uh, you didn't just need to trust in Jesus, you also needed to become culturally Jewish, religiously Jewish He needed to start where all Jews started, which was with circumcision. Faith in Jesus wasn't enough. And Paul then, in response to that, is making two major points in these opening uh, two chapters. And at the end of chapter 1 and in beginning of chapter 2 here, he does it by telling us his story. How he came to know Jesus And what we looked at last week, Paul makes the case that his gospel is independent from any human source. He wasn't taught this gospel. He didn't receive this gospel from any uh, tradition that came from man. He wasn't commissioned by a group of people. His claim is that he received this gospel from Jesus, that the gospel that he preaches is not man's gospel but God's gospel, that it's independent. But when we come to our passage tonight, he makes another claim that his gospel is not only independent, it's also identical to the other apostles, most particularly those apostles who were ministering in Jerusalem at these very early stages in the life of the church. So he's making this claim that his gospel is independent, but it's also identical to the other apostles. And all of that is meant to argue for the uniqueness of the gospel he preached to these churches in Galatia. And so, by making this argument that his his gospel is identical to the gospel of the other apostles, and as we see them named in our passage tonight, he refers to uh, Peter and James and John as the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. This is really a passage about gospel unity, how if there is one gospel and any other gospel would actually be to um, come up with a no gospel at all, Paul is here telling us that, he's telling us the story of how there is one gospel and it's the same as the apostles in Jerusalem and it's about unity. And what I want to do is to look with you tonight at why do we need this gospel unity? How does it work, and then what does it look like? So we're going to look at why we need it, how it works, and what it looks like. So first, let's look at why we need it. Paul, here, in the beginning, he describes now after 14 years, by which he means 14 years after he became a Christian, 14 years after uh, the events that are recorded in Acts chapter 9 took place in his life, that God revealed Jesus to Paul, who he really was. After 14 years, he goes up to Jerusalem. And, and there are a number of details here where Paul, he says things like this. He says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul, he makes this reference to a revelation, which if you were to go back to Acts chapter 11, you'll read about this Incident in the church in Antioch where Agabus, he was a prophet, uh, was proclaiming to the church in Antioch that there was going to be a famine. And as a result of that, the elders in, in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to bring relief to the church in Jerusalem. And while Paul doesn't uh, specify what he's talking about here, that's a fairly plausible uh, case or what he has in mind. And why does he mention that? Well, he mentions it because he wants to make very clear he wasn't um, sent for by the apostles in Jerusalem because they wanted to check to see if his gospel was accurate. What he's telling us is that I went to Jerusalem because God sent me there. God has sent me to Jerusalem. And when I went there, I also met with these apostles, those who seemed influential, Peter and James and John. And then he says the reason that becomes clear is he wants to make sure that he's not running or had not run in vain. In other words, is he wasting his time? Now, one way to read that was you might think that Paul is beginning to doubt his gospel. Is it really the true gospel? And I think what we need to see here is if, if we are tracking with Paul so far, it would be pretty hard to draw that conclusion. Paul seems fairly confident (laughs) that his gospel is the only gospel. So why is he concerned to find out, to compare it with the apostles in Jerusalem? And the reason is because he is not worried, he's not so concerned about his belief or certainty in the gospel, but the fruitfulness of it. What happens if the other apostles begin to give in to the false teaching, the claims that you need something else in addition to faith in Jesus? Well, his ministry would begin to unravel and their ministry would never get off the ground. The gospel would cease to be good news. And for Paul, the stakes couldn't be any higher. If you notice in verse 5, in reflecting on the uh, false brothers who came into this gathering and were present elsewhere in the church at that time as well, he says it's for the truth of the gospel that I am here standing up for this good news. That there is nothing less than the very heart and soul of the good news that Paul is concerned to preserve. Because Paul is saying that the gospel of faith in Christ is for all people no matter who you are where you're from what you've done it is a gospel of salvation by grace but these false brothers who he refers to in verse 5 they were saying things like this that god loves you that's true christ saves you yes that's true but you aren't thoroughly accepted until you begin at the beginning the way that every jew begins With circumcision, that you had to become Jewish. And for Paul, that was to abandon the good news. And why? Because everything in the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus. You became acceptable, you became clean, you became cherished, loved by God in Christ, not by doing something for Him. So Paul, he is concerned to find out from these Jerusalem apostles, would they hold to the same gospel as he did? The same gospel that he preaches, even in the face of this opposition. And as we'll see here, the result of this meeting is pretty encouraging because Paul comes and he puts his gospel before uh, the leaders in Jerusalem. And we get two indications here. Of the result of this meeting and how they were unified in their understanding of the gospel. If you look in verse 6, first of all, Paul says about these uh, other apostles, he said, They added nothing to me. In other words, when Paul had laid before them the good news of grace, there were no, yeah, but, there were none of those they added nothing to paul's message there was total gospel unity between them and practically what this means for us on a personal level and a corporate level it means that we must hold fast to faith in christ alone and not to any other performance or preference either for your assurance or even for to as necessary salvation when they say here that paul says they added nothing to me what he's telling us is that the apostles of the new testament what they believed and what they preached was that all that you need to be truly and fully who you are is grace you can't earn it and you can't lose it it's freedom And Paul here, not only does he tell us that they were in total agreement, that they added nothing to him, there's actually a concrete example of it. Because Paul brings Titus, his friend, along with him and Barnabas. And Titus, as he mentions here, is a Greek, he's a Gentile, he's a non Jew. And even in the midst of putting his gospel before the other apostles, these false brothers come in to spy out their freedom. Even in that situation, Titus is not compelled to become Jewish, to be circumcised. That's a pretty profound statement that this good news that Paul and the other apostles were preaching brought Titus to a point where he understood Christianity is really about who he was in Christ, not what he did for Christ. He was not compelled to become circumcised he didn 't feel like he needed to. He had understood that the gospel is a good news of freedom and so when Jesus is preached, as Paul and the other apostles are preached him, all threats to undermine our freedom lose their hold that 's the inclusion of Titus. The story of Titus helps us to realize. Perhaps you here tonight, you find yourself, um, you hear me saying that this, is, this, is, this letter is about gospel freedom. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, you know, I hear that. I even see it here. But I don't know if I really experience that or if I really taste that. What should you do? I think Paul's answer would simply be, you need to go back to this good news of freedom Again and again and again. That what begins to loosen the hold on guilt, on shame, on expectations that you may have of yourself or other people may put upon you, it's only this news of freedom in Christ that you were loved and cherished and accepted on the basis of what He has done not what you have done, does that imprisonment begin to lose its hold? Now, however, that's why we need it. That's why we need gospel unity because it is our adherence to this good news that you and I in this church, this city, can experience for themselves what Jesus has done that brings joy and hope and rest and peace. However, even as Paul and the other apostles, they find unity in the gospel, they also recognize that unity is what enables them to have flexibility in how they go about their, their ministry. So look over in verses 7 and 8. After Paul says that they have added nothing to him in his gospel, he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And then he says, because God had been at work in Peter's ministry, just like in Paul's ministry, they extended the right hand of fellowship, that they were one in their work together. But if you'll notice, Paul, his ministry is by and large to Gentiles. And Peter here, his ministry is by and large described as oriented towards the Jews. There's a recognition that they have different callings. But their task is the same gospel, to proclaim that message. Therefore, there's an implication here that it's really important for us as a church. That one of our great tasks, responsibilities, and privileges and opportunities is to work out together... How, how do we proclaim this message of grace to this place that speaks to the people that you work with, that you live with, that speaks to the people who occupy all the various areas of life in Birmingham? And there are actually two errors that we're, we need to avoid, and then I want to try to put it to you Positively when we talk about how gospel unity makes us flexible in how we go about our ministry, the the first error to avoid is over-adapting. And an example of over-adapting would be perhaps the idea that in order we would fail to preserve this gospel by perhaps being tempted to downplay or even eliminate parts of the gospel that may be offensive. So for example, the idea that there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. That is an exclusive truth claim. That can be very offensive. And for us to lose that would be to over-adapt. But then there's an opposite error we need to keep in mind, and that would be to under-adapt. Which, this op- often happens when we might allow the way that we do things to become so important to us that we would lose the wisdom and willingness to make room for outsiders who may be different than us, who may have different tastes or sensibilities than we do. And really the danger of losing the flexibility that gospel unity brings is that if you under-adapt or you over-adapt, eventually you lose the gospel. You have a different gospel. One writer puts it like this, that if you raise your traditions to the place of non-negotiables, you essentially create a system of legalism. And what we'd be saying is, real Christians always do things this way. And so there's an irony that under-adapting or over-adapting, they both threaten the gospel. And in both cases, cultural priorities and concerns have become more important than the gospel. That's what's happening for Paul. That's what he's trying to help us to understand and to see. That there is one gospel and there is great freedom in how we proclaim that gospel to particular people in particular place and time. But I realize that this can be... Um, somewhat troubling and even confusing for folks. but So I want to try to clarify what I'm saying here. What I am saying is that to be flexible in ministry does not mean giving people what they want to hear. It does not mean giving people what they want to hear. Or doing for people what perhaps they most prefer even. Rather, what it means is To be flexible in our ministry means that we would be giving people the Bible's answers which they may not at all want to hear. Giving people the Bible's answers to questions about life that they are asking and wrestling with at this particular point in time. And trying to do that in a way that's intelligible. Using language and forms of ministry that resonate, that connect with them. And doing that all in such a way that it's not just intellectual, but they can feel it. They actually can taste it. It has a force that leaves an impact. Even if, in the end, they decide, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So what I'm saying here is that this gospel unity gives us freedom to be flexible to give the Bible's answers to our friends and our neighbors and to do it in a way that hopefully makes sense to them, that they can understand. And I'll just give you as an example uh, for how I think about this. Uh, Every single week, uh, perhaps to greater or lesser degrees of success, (laughs) I am always trying to think through who are those people who are not here yet? Who are your friends who you spend all your time with, who don't yet know Jesus? And, and uh, I'm not putting you up to this, by the way, but I'm just telling you. One of the most encouraging things I hear is when one of you comes to me and says, you know, when you were talking about fill-in-the-blank, I wish my friend would have been here because I think they would have, they needed to hear that. For me, that's one of the greatest things I can hear because what it tells me is I am communicating, at least in preaching, in a way that you connect with and it made you think of somebody who's not here but you wish was. So the gospel enables us to be. Flexible because it's one truth, it's one gospel. However, even as there is this flexibility in ministry, I want to finish by looking at the very last verse in verse 10, where after these apostles they embrace in the right hand of fellowship, they recognize God's grace at work in, in all of their ministries. And recognize the diversity of their task to different kinds of people with different backgrounds, different histories, different stories. There is, though, one thing that they ask of Paul, and they say the only thing they say to him is that they ask him to remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do. So think of it like this. How do we know, as a church, if the gospel is alive in us? And I think the answer to that is very simple. Are we remembering the poor? Now, why might they say that to Paul? Why might that be the one thing? Well, in the context, the answer would be uh, similar to how I, I mentioned at the beginning, that there was a famine in Judea the churches in Judea were languishing and Paul was about to go out onto uh, other uh, other missionary journeys and plant other gentile churches and they were asking Paul to talk to those Christians about the need and the help that we need here in Judea and to send help back but even beyond that i think the reason they they say to him to remember the poor and Paul is so eager to do so is because it actually takes us to the very heart of the gospel. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he writes this, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. See, I... They're not telling us here, they're not telling Paul here, to remember the poor as uh, a way to show your acceptability to God. See, remembering the poor, that's evidence that you have been accepted, that you have been, you have been owned by grace, that you have begun to understand the lengths to which God was willing to go to rescue you. That at infinite cost to himself, that he would send his own son to live and to die and to rise again, that he would become poor. He would lose everything so that you could have everything. You see, remembering the poor isn't just about social action and social justice as it's called. It's a gospel... It is a gospel reality. And as we continue here at Red Mountain to think through what does it mean to be poor, it's not just monetary or financial. Actually, the more you talk to poor people, the more you realize the way they describe their poverty is emotional and relational and psychological, much more than material. And my guess is Every one of us here can describe ways in which we feel impoverished that go to the very core of who you are. So the idea here of remembering the poor is about the good news that is in Jesus, that we have a Savior who became poor so that we might become rich. And to follow after him is to endeavor to do the same for others. That's gospel freedom. Now, while, as we come to a close tonight, you might not have noticed this as we look at this passage, but it's interesting that Paul, in verse 5, he says, in writing to these Galatians, he says, we did not yield for a moment to these other teachers, these false brothers, so that we could preserve the gospel for you and i want you to hear tonight that is spoken to you too that here in the pages of scripture we have god in his grace showing us how he has preserved this good news for you and for me and this city and not only that you might i want you to notice that who's mentioned in this passage it's paul it's peter It's James and it's John. They are responsible for writing well over half of the New Testament. And they are unified in what the gospel is. Now, what that means for us is when you pick up the scriptures and you read the New Testament, I want you to know that this word tells you you can stake your your life on it. You can bank on it. That this is the gospel that God wants you to have. And it's the only gospel that can bring freedom into your life. It's the only gospel that can truly set you free. And our opportunity and our common effort together is we need to help each other lay hold of that gospel Because if we're honest, we're allergic to it. Our knee jerk reaction is to come up with a different one. And the beauty of the church, of our common life together, is we get to remind each other of this freedom. And that's not just being nice, that's giving life to one another. That's how we thrive as a community more than anything else, is that we take time to point each other back to this grace and this freedom in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to dive into this this letter and the message of freedom in Christ, Father, we ask that you would help us with all of the grace and humility of Jesus, to hold fast to this gospel. Father, we ask that you would help us to, um, to turn away from all of the ways in which we may um, add things to it, whether by our own uh, insecurities or the uh, expectations of others. I pray that we would find Jesus sufficient, that his work would bring joy and hope and freedom to our daily lives in ways that perhaps we have yet to know. We ask that you would help us, that you would make us free. Would you please do that for your glory and for our good? Amen.